Let's just pray, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, we sing of amazing things. And they are so different from the things we hear songs about on the radio every day. Where the meaning of life is to fall in love and and that's all. We sing of astonishing things that invite us to build our life on something much, much more substantial. Help us to learn this morning to build our life on the rock of Jesus. And help us to learn to see things in a completely new way. Amen. 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 That reading that was done so well for us by our friends earlier, (coughs) it's a great honor, by the way, to have the prophet Joel and King David himself with us this morning. Um, That reading is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Let me tell you the story so far. So far, uh, Jesus has lived. He has burst onto the public scene. He has taught for three years or thereabouts. He's been eventually crucified on a cross just outside of Jerusalem, buried, dead. And then on the third day, he's risen from the dead. And for 40 days or so, Luke tells us at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, for 40 days or so, Jesus met with his friends and he taught them more about what he calls the kingdom of God, the rule of God in people's lives. He says, wait, I want you to wait. Don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes and equips you and energizes you and enables you to do what I'm calling you to do, to take this message to the whole world. And last week, Jeff uh, took us through Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And uh, I don't know if you remember, those of you who are here, two things about what Jeff said. I'm just going to repeat them because they were worth repeating. The first thing is that, that being a Christian and being part of this new community is a bit like being in the crew of a dragon boat. And he gave us that picture of a dragon boat race on Derwent Water with the men's fellowship a few years ago, where in one boat, they were all big, strong fellas who wouldn't listen to the coach, who wouldn't listen to the cocks. And so they were all over the place. And the other boat was full of older, slightly more decrepit individuals, Uh, And they won because they did what they were told. They followed the commands of the coach. As we follow the commands of Jesus and we paddle together, we make progress. If we just do our own thing, we're all over the place. That was the first thing. Here's the second thing, that um, Christian people are Holy Spirit people. That is that God wants, loves us so much and wants so much to be with us, that God himself comes and dwells within us. That's who the Holy Spirit is. It's not electricity, it's God himself. And God himself comes to help us to see who Jesus is and to live a new and empowered life. That's what the Holy Spirit is about. And so the Holy Spirit bursts into the church. And at the end of that little passage, one of the people present says this, verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Now, Peter, who's one of the leaders of this 
Christian movement, stands up and he begins to speak to the crowd. And we're going to look at what Peter says. It's incredibly significant because it's, this is the first time Christians explained themselves in public. This is the first time Christians announce their message and explain their reasons for believing the message because there are reasons to believe the message. Christian faith is both emotionally satisfying and intellectually satisfying. It is rational and spiritual. Don't let anybody con you into thinking otherwise. Peter gives reasons. He explains why. But he does something really strange. The Holy Spirit has arrived. They're now speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is doing a new thing. People are going to dream dreams. People are going to have visions. People are going to prophesy. And then Peter does something really, really passé. Out of date. He opens up his Old Testament, blows the dust off it, and he reads it. Actually, probably working from memory, just like that. Dips into this ancient prophecy. And then, as if the Holy Spirit people there weren't shocked enough, he does it again, a second time. And then, as if to drive the message home really hard, he does it again, a third time. There are three big quotations from the Old Testament in this passage. You see, Peter is so brimful of the Holy Spirit that he opens up the written word of God and explores its meaning with people. Because Christians are not just Holy Spirit people. They are Word of God people. And we're at our best when the Spirit and the Word are working together. The Spirit gave us the Word of God. And if we let the Spirit help us, the Spirit will help us to interpret and understand and live out the Word of God as well. The two do not separate. The two belong together. Now, to help me this morning, I've asked Bobby Martin if he will help us to see what this prophecy from Joel is about. And I've also asked Mark Jones if he will help us then to see what David is saying in one of his psalms. So I'm going to hand over to Bobby now, who's going to talk about that quotation from the prophet Joel. And then Mark is going to talk us through that quotation from Psalm 16. Bobby. Morning. We're from a range of places, range of perspectives, all from lots of different environments. So I wonder when you come to this this morning, what your worldview is like, how you're interpreting this, how you're interpreting what is happening around in the world around you. Take an example, if you like. Age. I think it's absolutely scary that many, many of our children and young people, anyone under the age of 15 years old today, experience anything that has only come out of the war on terror since the 11th of September 2001. We've got an entire generation of kids who have grown up only thinking about that and having their existence shaped by what happened by two planes on a fateful day. For those of us who are a bit older, I'm a child of the 80s, I'm afraid, we grew up 
thinking about the IRA, wondering when the latest bomb was going to go off, what was happening with the peace talks. For those of you who are a bit older, perhaps your worldview was shaped by the Cold War, the nuclear on-off relationship between Russia and America. But isn't it interesting to think how our worldview is shaped? Perhaps that's a bit too high level. Um, perhaps a bit too high, high level for me to describe. But how, how about this illustration? If you're a parent, this might be quite relevant. Or you might have come across this before. If you're a grandparent, this might be sounding even more interesting. Imagine you're trying to tell your child or your grandchild about what life was like before mobile phones. About life was like before the internet. I mean, those of us who are slightly younger that don't have kids, maybe we're struggling to imagine that ourselves. Imagine what life was like before television. And Peter is describing something that is even better than that. And Peter's unlocking something that comes out of God's actual design and saying, that was there, God's design was right there, life before the Holy Spirit, it was in there before it came along. Now, we've made a bit of a mention about the life of Joel. Of course, we all think, well, who's Joel? And it's very, very easy to point the finger down, down at the bottom and go, oh yeah, there's Joel. But I do wonder, I've got to admit, if Peter hadn't referred to it, would any of us have ever heard of him? Because quite frankly, when do you ever come across this minor, minor prophet, three chapters of the Old Testament, stuck deep within the Old, stuck there, and it's really, it's just buried. Now if you want to look at it, um, he is found between pages 912 and 916 in your Bibles. The passage we're looking at is on page 914, and Joel is simply a three-chapter passage. It's one of the shortest books of the Bible. And actually, we have no idea who Joel was. I've looked into, you know, some of the learned scholars. People have written theology books, and actually some of them put him around about the time of the uh, kings, soon after Solomon, that kind of time. Other people put him after the exile. They're interpreting what Joel says, but actually there's no historic record of him. doesn't mean he didn't exist. He was there. He was prophesying. But quite frankly, we just don't know much more about him. In a nutshell, Joel sees a vision. Now, it's actually not an easy read, Joel. It might be only three chapters. You can get through it in about five minutes. But it's quite a disturbing read, actually, because he sees an invasion of locusts coming through, hitting a nation, wiping out pretty much infrastructure and life as the people of God knew it, taking out the priesthood, taking out the offerings they could make, literally wiping out the harvests. Modern illustration, perhaps. Think of the American snowstorm last weekend that grounds New York to the halt. Think about, perhaps closer to home, the floods in Cumbria. Think about maybe the tsunami hitting the Pacific Islands. Life comes to, or normal life, comes to a standstill. And of course we could, you know, with, with our modern 20th century scientific perspective, we could read that and we could say, well, that's just global warming for you. But Joel doesn't see it that way. Joel sees it as a sign of God's coming judgment. He calls the people of God to repentance and fasting, something that perhaps they should have been doing for a while before that, but obviously not doing. And it's uncomfortable because it's a message of destruction, a message of judgment, 
And then in chapter 2, after you've had the army of locusts blow their way through, God brings a message of restoration. And God cleanses the lands and he pours out his Holy Spirit on the people. And then comes God's judgment on the entire nation. So why on earth is Joel using that as a picture of what is happening on the day of Pentecost? So Peter's introducing, I think, the the people and us to a brand new worldview, but actually saying this has been God's plan all along. God's judgment is coming. It's come. But instead of chaos and darkness on the entire nation, he's turned it against his own son. He's brought restoration to us through the cross. We're entering a new time in the human existence when God's Holy Spirit is being poured out far and wide. Another interesting fact, perhaps, from the Old Testament. If you read through it, you find that God's Spirit was only ever poured out on select people. You had kings being given the Spirit of God. You had prophets. You had those in authority. But actually, the ordinary people didn't get much of a look in. And of course, one other critical factor, God's spirit on the Old Testament worldview was only ever given to one nation, and that was the nation of Israel. In Joel, this passage that we've been thinking about, God promises to pour out his spirit on all people, sons, daughters, old men, young men, servants, men, women. I think that's exactly what happened at Pentecost, isn't it? For the first time in human history, the Holy Spirit is given to hundreds of ordinary people. And they're entering into a new time in the human existence when we can all experience that. But Joel and Peter remind us that there's more to come. We share it in a three-stage worldview. We look back on the life of Christ and what he did for us. We look into the present and we live in that resurrection power. But we also look forward to the day of judgment, don't we? And Joel prophesies this. And the world is going to end one day. And we need to be able to call out, God save us, because that is what Peter and Joel are both reaffirming. Are we living in that worldview? We're going to think about that, I think, a lot more as Mark and Dave come back to speak. But when the big events in the world go on around us, do we see God working in his eternal perspective? Or are we just looking forward at our own little picture about what's going on and interpret it that way? It's quite interesting, actually, because Peter didn't actually kind of grasp the full essence of the message that he was giving himself I don't think if you look at Acts 10 you see that Peter actually had to get his own vision his own big picture of what was going on before he could actually um, see that the Holy Spirit being released into the lives of the Gentile community as well the non-Jews isn't it exciting that God's been moving in such a powerful way but Peter stops he pauses he moves on to the next psalm and the next reading Mark I don't know what you guys think when you read through the book of Acts. I don't know if you notice a common trend that occurs all throughout the book of using the Old Testament, the old Jewish texts, as launching pads to going into explaining what's going on and also explaining what key, what key beliefs should be going forward in the life of the early church. This is exactly what's going on throughout this entire passage that we see this morning. And in this particular section that I'm speaking on, I'm looking at the Davidic prophecy. And just as I'm saying that, just to make things quite clear, if I ever say the word Davidic up here, that just means David. Just in case, because I do tend to say 
that kind of kind of thing. So Peter here is directly linking what has gone on very recently with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the prophecy that King David mentions in Psalm 16, which David read out through from the passage in Acts earlier on. Now, the interesting thing about this prophecy, this is well over 1,000 years before the event of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So, so there's a massive amount of history here. And we're not going to have time to go through all of this this morning, but what I would like to do is I'd like just to whet your appetites a little bit so you can go away and have a look into it for yourselves. Because in this short time that we've got, there's absolutely nowhere that we could fully cover all of what this, these prophecies are covering. So as I said, the prophecy is clearly about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm looking at the psalm now. If I look at verse, if I look through this passage, what it clearly says that the resurrection will happen. It talks about not letting, letting your loved one remain in the realm of the dead. Now that is a prophecy about resurrection, about someone who would no longer stay dead and buried, but would come back to life. And one, when I was studying this passage, one of the very interesting things I found was in verse 32 of Acts. And it's just two words, this Jesus. Now, I think there's got to be a question there when you read that and go, well, why doesn't it just say Jesus? Why, in particular, this Jesus? Well, two, two points on that that I kind of looked into and had a look at. One of them is a very simple point. The name Jesus in Hebraic is comes from the word Yeshua, which also is where we also get the name Joshua from in many occasions. So it's probably quite a common name back in that day. So, so Peter's making a very specific one. Nobody else bearing this name of Yeshua, or Jesus we would translate now as, is the Messiah, is the one person who we're talking about in this prophecy. Only Jesus Christ, only Jesus of Nazareth. The other point as well is that there have been people all for, for quite a few periods of time before that who had claimed to be the Messiah, and even people afterwards as well. Two, two names that came to mind as I was reading through was one from right before Jesus was born, a man named Simon of Perea. Now, I'm not going to go into, into too much depth, but he had been called to be the Messiah by different people. People said, this guy is who he is. But needless to say, after he died, there was no resurrection. He never came back to life. Another man who came afterwards was a guy called Simon Magus. Now he has an an altercation with Peter later on in the book of Acts as well, and we see that. And he, by many, had been called the Messiah as well. He's going, this guy is, Jesus was Messiah, this guy was. But again, unlike with Jesus Christ, when Simon Magnus died, he didn't rise again. No sightings of him. No testimonies of more than 500 people, like we see with Jesus. None of that at all. We just see Simon Magnus dying. And this is what, what really this whole prophecy is really talking about. We see Peter say, Assuredly, I tell you that, that David is dead and buried. He is still in his tomb today. So he's touched on, the, on this key important fact that Jesus Christ rise from the dead. And that is really what this 
This prophecy is all about Jesus died, rose again, and this is what is central to what we believe as Christians. If you might imagine this, if you go on, my, on this side of the room, you have the book of Genesis, and on this side, you've got the book of Revelation, beginning and end of the Bible. Jesus Christ on the cross fits right in the middle, holding the, be- the beginning and the end of time together. And that is what is really so central of what we believe. All of the other heroes of the faith, heroes are mentioned in, in Hebrews 11, people like Abraham, David, and so many more, all, when their time came, died and did not rise again. Only Jesus Christ did that. And that is an amazing fact and is an amazing part of the story, an amazing part of what we are a part of, that if we are Christians today, we are part of that, that lineage, that history. And as I said, I don't have all the time to go massively in depth with it all. But, it such, but when you look back, it's such an amazing history. Such an amazing history. And Peter establishes this as key to the early church. Don't forget the death and the resurrection of Christ because this is what it really all boils down to. And when I was looking for a way just to kind of really sum all of this up in one simple, simple phrase, I came across, across a quote by Josh McDarrell, who I'm sure a lot of people in this room might, might know of who have read some, some of his works. And what it says is, few people seem to realize that the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone to a worldview that provides the perspective to all of life. This one event is just so central. And I don't think in the time that I've got I could really cover it all and in that much depth and just say any more clearly the death and the resurrection is central. And this is what Peter's establishments have said. You know, he's saying, don't forget this. And this is where he decides to move on into his next little bit, and which I'll pass over on that to Dave. Thanks, Mark. <clears throat> well, here it is. David introduces the last quotation from this ancient book, the Old Testament. Exalted, this is verse 33, to the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what Peter's coming to the climax of what he's saying. And if this is just a message that was composed on the spur of the moment... It was done so against the background of a guy who'd thought for several years very deeply about these passages of the Bible. And that little quotation is from Psalm 110, which if you read it afterwards, you read it through, you find it's one of those passages of the the Old Testament that makes no sense whatsoever without Jesus. With Jesus, it's clear. Without Jesus, it's complete nonsense. And um, Peter pulls this out and talks about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's talking David, King David, about someone greater than him. Sitting at the Lord's right hand, Yahweh's right hand, God's right hand. 
and waiting until his enemies are a footstool for his feet. Now, if you read that psalm, it's a triumph psalm. It's the triumph of someone who's won a great military victory and is overseeing the destruction of his enemies. Now, this is the thing. Jesus, at this moment, is not overseeing the destruction of his enemies. He's inviting his enemies to come and live for him. He's giving his enemies the opportunity for mercy. He's giving his enemies the possibility of becoming part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. Now, when we started to talk about this and we looked at this passage and we split it up into bits that each of us could talk about, we communicated a lot on the, online and just got to ourselves straightened out. And we got uh, the passage divvied up. Mark agreed to do his bit um, and uh, uh, we, 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 we researched it a little bit together, gave each other's notes to one another, had a read and said, yeah, that looks okay, that looks true. Bobby did his bit and, and, and we thought, okay, that looks right. Let's go for that. But in all of that, there was one thing that didn't get much of a mention, but which has emerged for both guys this afternoon, this morning. Um, Bobby talked about a worldview where you see that God is working out a plan in history. Joel knew about part of that plan ten centuries before it happened. Um, Mark mentioned worldview, a worldview which is shaped by the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. So we're going to think just briefly about world view. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Maybe you've not heard that phrase before. Let's have a think about what it means. A world view is the way you see the world. And the way you see the world determines everything. And basically, everybody comes into their lives and sees the world in the light of their own experiences. And sometimes during the course of your life, you choose to change your worldview. And worldview is a little bit like deciding to put on another pair of spectacles. (laughs) So when I put these specs on, you've all gone brown, (laughs) isn't it? And the ones of you who looked a bit pasty earlier on, now you have a very healthy tan. Uh, And it's rather nice. You look actually much better like this than you did before, even though I have to admit, you're slightly out of focus. The worldview you have is what you put between your eyes and everything else. So somebody who says, I don't believe in God, that's a worldview, and that's the, the view that they see everything through. Somebody who says, I can't believe life has any meaning, it's just all randomness. That's a worldview, and they're going to interpret everything through that worldview. And we live in a world, we live in a a generation that says, uh, broadly speaking, well, we don't believe in God, and we don't believe that uh, life has meaning, so you have to find meaning for yourself and live that out as best you can. So invent a meaning for your life and try and live that out. And as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, then, uh, then it's entirely up to you. And if you think about that, it's a very lonely worldview because you're on your own and it's also the most common worldview. This is the BBC worldview. And because it's the BBC worldview, if you disagree with it, then there's something wrong with you. 
because the BBC is largely headed up by upper-middle-class people who've been telling other people how to run their lives for the last 20 centuries, or at least since the Norman Conquest. They know best. But when you, when you decide to see things through a different worldview, you say, no, I don't agree. I, I, I see things differently. You put a different pair of spectacles, you see things differently. Now, the, um, the accepted worldview says, well, if you choose to live your life the Christian way, that's very sweet. As long as you don't interfere with other people and as long as you don't pass it on to your kids, increasingly, we're being told. But if you see things through the spectacles of, of Jesus, you see things differently. You cannot follow Jesus and not bother anybody with what you believe. You cannot follow Jesus and not teach it to your kids. And so you get a clash of worldviews. And so the people who take a different worldview and who say, I, I, I'm not biased, I'm perfectly reasonable. They say, now the problem with you people of faith is you're irrational. And that is exactly what Peter is not saying on the day of Pentecost. If you were listening to what Bobby was saying, you'll see that probably about seven centuries before the life of Jesus, a prophet spoke about things that happened. The disastrous plague of locusts in Israel. His prophecies were preserved in God's word because he was so impressive. He got it right. But there was another meaning hidden in there. And it was to do with what would happen when Jesus had lived and died and rose again and the spirit was poured out on humankind. I'm a Christian because it's reasonable. It's rational. Prophecy, ancient prophecy, has been fulfilled. Now, if you're listening to what Mark was saying a little bit earlier, you, you, you see, unmistakably, Mark was saying that this Jesus died and came back to life again. That's the second big point that Peter's making in this passage. So you've got a human being who was dead put in a grave, stone dead. And he came back to life. And many people, the Bible says up to 500 people at once, saw Jesus risen from the dead. And I'm a Christian because this happened in human history. And the evidence for it is massive. You can't just dismiss it with a wave of the hand. The evidence for it is massive. So these first Christians hit the streets, full of the Holy Spirit. They were full of the Holy Spirit, and they said, let's read this ancient prophecy. This has come true. Let's look at this resurrection of Jesus. This has actually happened. They were talking about a faith that had good reasons. I love it when people tell me I'm being irrational. It's usually the biggest mistake they made that day. And then Peter quotes from Psalm 110 and says, this is what's happening now. Jesus, the Lord, is seated at the right hand of God and he is waiting for his enemies to become his footstool, to come to his feet and learn from him and submit to him and serve him. And the words that Peter spoke had such power in his life and I just put the wrong glasses on, so I'm going to have to just... <laughs> I planned that. 
just to show you, if you get the wrong worldview, you don't see anything right. <laughs> the people heard this, verse 37. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Great question. What do you do? And Peter says, if I can put it in, in the terms we've been using this morning, what you have to do is change your specs and to see the world in a different way. How do you change your specs? Peter says in this next little passage. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. First, repent. Repent, it's that all frightening religious word, isn't it? It sort of makes us feel slightly nervous. What it means is, put yourself under the rule and reign of King Jesus. Up to now, I've been living under the rule and reign of King David, me. Put yourself under the rule and reign of King Jesus. Let him be king. Let God be God. Give in and let him be God. That's what repent means. It's a change of management. It's a change of direction. And I want to invite you, so does Mark, so does Bobby. We want to invite you to change direction. Repent and be baptized. Now, sometimes we say, you know, being baptized is just a symbol of, of, of conversion. Yeah, that's true. But it's amazing how often the first Christians linked these two together. Repent and be baptized. Let the church plunge you into water as a symbol of what's happened. Why so close together? For this reason. Jesus commands that we should do this. And being baptized is a great way of showing that from now on you're going to live a Christ-ruled life. He is in charge. And so being baptized is a way of, of showing the world that, showing your family that, showing your friends that, showing the church that. And so we want to challenge you, me and Bobby and Mark, we want to challenge you. If you have not yet been baptized, come and see one of us at the end. Tell us and we will, we will make the necessary arrangements. We'll baptize you as soon as we can. And what will happen? Your sins will be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit that fell on the disciples then will come and occupy your life now. Because God isn't going to invite you to live a life centered on the, the king without giving you the presence of the king in your life and the power of the king to rule and change your life too. You see, Christians are Holy Spirit people and word of God people. And the promise, this is verse 39, is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. On that day, 3,000 people became followers of Jesus. That's astonishing, isn't it? Similarly astonishing things are happening as we speak. By the year 2020, the country on planet Earth with the highest proportion of followers of Jesus per head of population will be the People's Republic of China. The growth of the church in, those, in that country 
is astonishing. It's the same in um, South America. It's the same in so many places. Me and Colin, one or two others, were sitting around at the, the Globe Cafe on Thursday night, our jaws on the floor, meeting people from the Muslim world who've come to faith and are now in Britain because of their faith in Jesus. This is amazing. And this is happening even as we speak. The fact it's not happening in Sunderland right now shouldn't deter us. The fact it could happen in Sunderland should motivate us. The Holy Spirit is the same. Those who accepted his message were baptized. So what about a Christian who's not been baptized? Be baptized. And 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. Amazing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the staggering impact of your word upon your people. Thank you, Lord, that it's by your spirit that this is the case. And as we turn these things over in our minds and reflect on them, help us to see what this means for us. Help us to live out what it means to follow Jesus. Help us to love him. Help us to obey him. Help us to be the people that he wants us to be. And Father, I want to pray for those here who are just struggling with this issue of baptism. We're frightened for all sorts of reasons. I pray that you might, by your spirit, help us to, to have the courage to obey you. Help us to live lives that show that you are in charge. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite you to take bread and wine and to remember Christ's death. Um, some of my friends are going to help us to serve this. Mark and Bobby and Andrew are going to help us. And uh, David, I wonder if you could help on one of the tables as well. That would be lovely. Um, we're just going to sing that song, which is, I love this song, An Army of Ordinary People, A Kingdom Where Love is the Key. And as we stand and sing that song, maybe you'd just like to come forward and receive bread and wine. Remember, the bread is the, the body of Christ given for you. The blood symbolizes the new covenant in his blood poured out for you. Just to renew and recrystallize your walk with him from now on. If, if you can't get to the front, I'll be coming to you. I'll bring uh, bread and wine to you as well. As I come around, just, just catch my eye and I'll serve you. Okay, let's stand and let's sing An Army of Ordinary People.